The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. All right, so tonight we are going to be covering chapter three in Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. Uh, so we are transitioning in this first part of the book from talking about kinship relationships to talking about what patronage is and how that works in the world of scripture. So the first thing that I want to point out is that there are two different kinds of friendship relationships in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world, okay? And we're going to break these into two categories. One is symmetrical and one is asymmetrical. Does everybody know what symmetrical and asymmetrical mean? Okay, so in symmetrical, the, the, the example that the authors give at the beginning of the book I thought was really helpful, that oftentimes when we in the West hear the word friend, the way that we interpret that is people that I have familiarity with, or people that I have a certain level of comfort or intimacy with, or people that I have affinity with, or some kind of a connection with, and the point that, that they make is that in uh, in, in the majority world, friendliness is not the same thing as friendship, right? So when he's having the discussion with one of his friends, his, his friend very pointedly says that it's not the same thing, that we're friendly to everyone, but being someone's friend is something more involved than that. Friendship is very, uh, it's intentional because there are connections that are being made between people in one group and people in another group. So if you guys have your book with you, we'll look at a quote that they have on page 66. <clears throat> this is the first full paragraph. The authors write, ancient Mediterranean people didn't view themselves as individuals who would get through life on their own. They were part of collective groups. As such, they thought in terms of the collective group getting through life together. And that's what we mean when we're, when we're saying symmetrical. So the people in, in a collectivist group think about themselves as a collective, which is why we use that specific terminology. They think about themselves in terms of we support us, or in the book they say we support we. Okay? That's the way that they think about how those relationships work. The relationships are there in order to make sure that we as a group survive, that we as a group thrive together. And so resources are shared and connections are shared. There's a, there, there's a constant back and forth, which they refer to in the book as reciprocal dependency. There's a, that, that each person in the group, each unit in the group is able to depend or rely on the other people in the group. And that, that, that works in both directions. Everybody at once is relying on the group. Now, again, we're talking in generalities. Okay. This is not true in every group, it doesn't work the same way. In every single group, we're talking in generalities. Generally, this is how this works. Uh, so they use this term 
of reciprocal dependency. And they give us several examples from, from history. The question that I had as I was reading this chapter is, sometimes I feel like the authors take their current experiences and project them backwards. Um, and so I wanted to have some, some concrete examples. Like, was because I know that this concept of patronage, whether it be symmetrical or asymmetrical, I understand that that, that that existed at the time of the New Testament. But is this something that applies in a broader sense? And so I did some, some looking around online, and I came across an article that was written by um, Westbrook. All right. The, the article is called Patronage in the Ancient Near East. And he looks at documents outside of Scripture. He looks at uh, some documents from ancient Egypt, from ancient Babylon, uh, and, and some of those places to see what does patronage look like in those communities. What, what does it look like in those particular, uh, the, those, uh, particular places? Now, in the book, they mention that one of the issues that comes up in this we support we mentality is that when individualists talk to people from collectivist cultures, the collectivist cultures are often very surprised at the level of generosity that they find among especially Western Christians. Um, because we support we means that I'm going to take care of the people in my immediate circle, but if I give my resources to people outside of my immediate circle, then it's no longer dependent. I'm taking our things and I'm sending them away. And so it can be very difficult sometimes in those circles to uh, to create a sense uh, or of, of urgency around the, the need to take care of people that are outside of that circle. Uh, and so pastors coming into that environment will often uh, will, will often remark on on how um, on how surprising it is for for them to be able to make an appeal to Christians in a Western context and then just to have resources show up. Uh, that it's just not something that they that they typically rely on. But this is the thing that the authors do. They spend a little bit of time at the beginning talking about symmetrical. But symmetrical also looks a lot like kinship dynamics. Uh, and so if we understand how kinship works, we can kind of understand how that kind of patronage works. But the asymmetrical dynamics, that's the one that is going to be a little bit more difficult for us to understand. And so that's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about tonight. Now, I have explained how patronage works in this in, in the second system to us before. So some of this is going to sound like a review because I've, I've talked about this in Bible studies and, and in, in sermons before. But we're going to talk about how asymmetrical, um, asymmetrical patronage works in, in the world. So, but the, the quote that I wanted to look at is uh, here on page 69. We're talking about the relationships that exist between people that have different means. So this is between people that are not socially equal. So on the first or the second full paragraph, it says implicit in this arrangement is the is an important truth. Inequality among people permeated the Greco-Roman world. It's part of the modern Western world also, but we like to pretend that it isn't. That's because as individualists, at least theoretically, we value treating everyone equally and ensuring everyone has equal opportunities in life. In America, our founding documents assert that we hold this truth to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. It goes without being said, there's that language again, it's self-evident that equality is something to aim for, to uphold, to honor, 
And while this may feel self-evident to us as individualists, it's actually just a cultural value. In the ancient Mediterranean world, treating people equally was not a cultural value. They believed people should be treated differently. It was self-evident to them that the collective groups to which they belonged determined their opportunities and the way that they should be treated. And many collectives, uh, collective cultures still see it this way today. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to, to, to find some language that, to, to, to look at some language that I found helpful in categorizing how patronage works. And this article that I found from Westbrook uh, did, a, I thought, a really good job of this. So there are four key terms that we're going to use to describe what this looks like, and it will help us to contrast some of the misunderstandings that we might have when we think about patronage. So the first one is that these relationships are asymmetrical. Now, I know that we're defining things with the definition, all right, but you're just going to have to go with me for a minute. Right? <laughs> so here's what we mean by that. We mean that in an asymmetrical, so this is in, pet, in, in a patronage relationship, there is a difference in power or station or influence or wealth between the two people that are involved in that relationship. So if it's not that, then we're talking about this, this other kind of friendship that we're calling symmetrical or some kind of a kinship relationship. We're talking about a different relationship, but in, in patronage, in, in ace, it's asymmetrical. There's, there's a difference between the person who is a patron and the person who is a client. And if you look back in older literature, sometimes they'll use other terminology. They'll talk about uh, suzerain-vassal relationships. And, and, and ethnologists had lots of different ways of talking about those over the, the, the last century. But the, way, the term that is common now, especially among sociologists and biblical scholars just talk about patronage, all right? So it's asymmetrical. Are we clear on what that means? So there's a power dynamic. Somebody has power or wealth or influence or authority or honor, and the other person doesn't. It's all unbalanced. Right? There's a, there, there's, there, it's, it is very unbalanced. This One person can't reciprocate in kind. In kind, exactly. <clears throat> the second thing is that the relationship that they have is mutual. Okay, And when I say mutual, what we mean is that they share according to their abilities. So that's like what Greg just said about it not being the same in kind is true, but they share according to the abilities that they have. They're, they're, this is not just I go to a person who has lots of money and I ask for money and he gives me money and then that's the end of it. That's a different kind of, we'll talk about that in just a second, I think. <laughs> that we may skip the contrast section on the board. I, we'll, we'll see what we have time for. I want to make sure that we're, we're clear on this, okay? But this is mutual. There, there's, a, there's a give and a take on both sides of this, okay? This is not one person who is just handing things out to other people. This is two people that are entering into a relationship, and they're both giving back and forth one to the other, okay? So, there is, so it's asymmetrical. It's mutual. And... He uses the word continuity. I'm going to use the word repeated. Um, and what that means is that it doesn't just happen one time. Okay? It's not just, I need money. I go to the rich guy in town. I say, can you give me money because I want to start a new church? And then he gives me money and I start a new church and then off we go. Or I want to start a new business. Or I need a car because mine broke. It's not just a one-time thing. They're entering into a relationship with give and take on both sides. Does that make sense? Okay, I just want to, I, I want to make sure that we're not, I, 
Nobody's getting left behind tonight, all right? Even though we're using big, weird words, okay? <coughs> so so there's, a, there's a difference in, in social standing. Both people in, in the relationship are giving, uh, are, are giving as they are able to the other one. And this is something that happens over a period of time. This, this relationship is something that develops between them. And nobody's forcing anybody to do it, at least ideally. Ideally. <laughs> ideally, nobody's being forced. Now, obviously, we can imagine times where people are forced to do that, right? Um, but ideally, this is something that's voluntary. They're both doing, no, nobody's, nobody's arms are, 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 are being twisted here. But there's social pressure, but there's... There, there is sometimes no social pressure, but there's over legal requirement mm -hmm. or anything like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so this is why I have I have a list of, of <laughs> contrasts. It oh, that was open. Went yeah. right into the pocket. <laughs> so this is it's helpful for us to put some contrasts up there because in our minds and in our culture, this doesn't make sense because our relationships don't work this way. And so what sometimes happens is that we try to figure out analogies in our own context, and usually the analogies mess us up somewhere on here, okay? So I'm just going to write these down really quickly, all right? This is contrasted with a legal relationship, okay? By a legal relationship, I mean that there is no law in society that is forcing people to have this kind of a relationship. There's, if one of them violates this relationship... There's, there, there's no court that they can go to and, and sue somebody for something. So there's, not, there's, no, there's nothing legally. It's only social pressure and social expectation. It's only their culture that creates the space for this relationship, okay? So there's not a legal structure that is at work here at all. In addition to that, we also have to contrast this with bureaucrats, okay? Because in a bureaucratic system, what we have are impersonal roles and the goal of bureaucracy is equality. So really, if you want to understand how, uh, how individualism in the West functions best, it's bureaucracy. That's how we make, sure, we make sure that everybody has filled out the same paperwork, everybody has jumped through all of the same hoops, and then we get to the end, and we roll the dice, and we see what happens. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's this, the, that kind of, that, that idea that our relationship can be managed by uh, by engaging in the right kinds of rules and the right kinds of uh, gatekeeping. That's not, again, what we're talking about here. So this is not a legal relationship, and it's not based on bureaucracy. In addition to that, it's not based on commerce, okay? Because there may be, there may be a, a, a business reason that these two people are connected to each other. But the relationship is not a business relationship because in a business relationship, one, it's going to be impersonal and it's going to be immediate. It means right now in this moment, we're exchanging goods and that's the extent of our relationship. Our relationship only goes as deep as the things that we can hold in our hands and exchange, whether it's goods for goods or cash for goods, whatever that looks like. That, again, is not what we're talking about here. That does not mean that the two people in a patronage relationship don't have a business relationship. They may be conducting business side by side. They may, in fact, be conducting the same business and merging them together. All of those are possibilities, but here's the point. It's not about exchanging goods. It's about creating a connection between two different people. And then the last one is that this is not based on kinship. And the reason that we point out that this is not based on kinship is that in kinship, there is a certain amount 
of involuntariness about it, okay? In a kinship relationship, you don't have a choice. You are part of that kinship network, and you're going to do the things that you're obligated to do. But here, there are no involuntary obligations. Whatever obligations are taken on by either party in a patronage relationship, those are being taken on in a voluntary way. And this is why I say it's really hard for us in our own context to picture what patronage looks like because we almost always are going to default into one or the other of those. We're going to say, oh, so it's kind of like this. It's not. It's not kind of like anything in the culture where we live right now, except maybe maybe the mafia. I was just going to say, <laughs> opening scene of The Godfather. Opening exactly scene of The Godfather. There you go. It's exactly this. Uh -huh. Which is perfect because it's, of course, a, a callback to a Mediterranean kind of, uh, kind of relationship. Um, and, and this is part and parcel of that culture that develops in, in that part of the world. What I thought that was particularly helpful in the book is the example that they give to us of what this looks like, right? And so in the book, they talk about two people. There's Belen and there's Diocles, right? And Belen has a bakery and the bakery burns down and there is a rich man in the neighborhood. And so he asks, asks a friend who is a friend of Diocles if he thinks that Diocles would help, and he says, I'll introduce you. So he goes to Diocles with his friend, his friend introduces them, and then he explains to Diocles what's happened. And Diocles gives him money so that he can rebuild his bakery. Because he can't go to anybody else, because there aren't other people that are available in that area. But now there is a relationship that's established. And so now there is a, a social obligation that, that, that Belen is under. So Belen now each day goes to Diocles' house and stands there in case there's something that Diocles needs. And if Diocles needs something in the future that is bakery-related, he is permitted now to go to Bell and say, listen, I've got a party coming and we need, you know, a bunch of bread for this party. And he's going to, uh, you know, pay him whatever the fair amount is, but he's there. And it, But this is what's important. And they, I, they say this a couple of times in this book. They said it repeatedly in the last book. For us in the West, we love terminology and categories. We literally have a whiteboard filled with terminology <laughs> and categories to try to help us to like put things in the right compartment. We, we, we taxonomize. We have this scientific way of understanding things. We think even human relationships can be can be labeled correctly and broken down. We can put them all into the right file folders, and then you know everything will be neat and tidy and put away. In the majority world. They never use any of these terminologies ever. All that Bellin would ever say is my friend Diocles. And all that Diocles would ever say is my friend Bellin. That's it. When you're reading ancient documents, that's the way that they would discuss it. When you're reading scripture, that's the way scripture talks about it. Because in this culture, it goes without being said. When they say my friend, all of this, right? All of this is tacked onto that word friend. For us, when we say my friend, we might have to break it down into a couple of different categories, maybe, of how, how we typically in our culture divide friends up. But usually friend just means my associate or my acquaintance or, uh, you know, or, you know we, we might add something on my good friend or my best friend. We, we have, you know, other, other ways that we can modify the word so that it, it, it gives more specificity. But we don't we don't operate in in this kind of this kind of way. We don't have it in our minds about this is what patronage looks like and this is how it works and back and forth. But what's important for us to understand is that in their world, the way that they're talking about this is 
this is what friendship looks like. If you want to understand how friendship works in the ancient world, it looks like this. Now, it may not be as huge and and life-changing as as the, the relationship between Belen and Diocles. And that's why next week, when we read through the next chapter, we're going to look at a whole range of these kinds of relationships that are laid out in Scripture, where we, where we hear about the, the relationship that Paul has with the people that he's working with. It doesn't look anything like Belen and Diocles. It looks... It, it looks unique in its own way, but they still are operating in this kind of patronage. And it's important for us to hear that because Paul especially uses patronage language when he talks to us. Uh, when he talks to us about who we are, when he talks to us about who we have become, when he talks about Jesus being our, our intercessor, uh, when he talks about, uh, uh, about Jesus as, as a go-between, the language that he uses consistently is this language about relationships between a patron, uh, a client, without ever using that terminology. This also puts a newer spin, at least for me, because I wasn't here for the last book, uh, newer spin on the book of uh, Philemon. The book of Philemon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, when you think about that study that we did in that book, like you can, I mean, Philemon's one chapter long. You can go back and look yeah. at that, and it is loaded with this kind of information but here is here is the kicker this is this is the one that just sort of you know my 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 brain got all wrinkled when i when i ran across this the first time in the world of of paul in the world of the new testament when somebody was a patron and they had somebody come to them and at, and make a request the gift that they gave to them was called charis the word that they use in their world is charis and that word in our Bibles is translated every single time as grace. The gift the patron gives is called grace. It's not something the person deserves. It's not something that the person has, has done anything to earn. It's something that the patron bestows on them in order to create a relationship between the two of them. And the response that the client then has toward their patron is called pistis. And that is exactly the same word that Paul uses again and again, is faith, faithfulness. So the, literally the theological words that are the, the foundation for us as Protestant Christians are rooted in exactly this relationship. And if we don't understand this relationship, it causes us to make assumptions about what those words mean. And even sometimes in the history of the church to invent our own definitions uh, and then to force people to, to, to choose life or death under those definitions that we've invented and, and forced onto the people that live in our, uh, in, in our culture and, and in the world around us. We, literally, wars have been fought between nations in the West over grace and faith, and never was this a part of the conversation once. So what I would like us to do, we've still got about, uh, about 15 minutes left. I've got some examples up on the board here of what this looks like. Now, I have one that I want us to do a deep dive in because they don't do it in the book, and I think that it's, it, it, it's worth looking at. The other ones are just going to be some, some superficial uh, things. But what I want us to think about is when we, when, when we hear the word friend or friendship or friends, if we think about things in terms of this relationship, people, people with varying degrees of power and the way that they respond to each other, whether, whether that's a, respond, a response of gratitude or it's a response of, of grace, whatever that, I, I want us to pay attention to that and then to, to ask the question, how does this change the way that I'm hearing this passage? Okay, but the first one that I'd like for us to look at is, in fact, from the Old Testament. So if you guys have your Bibles, I'll invite you guys to turn to the book of First Kings. All right, 1 Kings, we're going to be in chapter 17. 
verse 8. All right, so in, in, in the story at this point, there is a drought that, has, that, that God has, uh, has, has laid over the nation of Israel because there is a wicked king and a wicked queen who are in charge, and they have rejected Yahweh, and they have uh, driven his priests out and, and or murdered them, and they've replaced that worship with the worship of Canaanite religions. And so Elijah leaves and goes uh, goes into a neighboring area, and this is what uh, we have written in First Kings. We're just going to read uh, this section, and then we're going to kind of talk about it a little bit. All right. So I'm starting here in verse eight. The word of the Lord came to him to Elijah: Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, in the parallel account, three years pass. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with, with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber of the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now, what does that story tell us about the patron-client relationship? At the very beginning of this story, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, I want you to go to Sidon. I want you to leave Israel and go into the land of the Canaanites. And you're going to go to the house of a widow and she is going to take care of you. The story begins with the Lord telling Elijah to go and enter into a friendship where he will be a client to a woman who's going to take care of his needs because he has nothing. He brings nothing with him. 
there in the middle of a drought. He's not capable of producing anything. He's just going to show up at her door and she's going to take care of him. So the Lord gives him to her. And then what happens? He gets there and she doesn't have anything. And so now the relationship reverses, right? Now he says, because the Lord sent me, you are not, as, as long as you are taking care of me, you are not going to run out of food until the drought has ended. And so the relationship reverses. And now she's being taken care of by taking care of him. And you'll notice that it's just kind of a throwaway, but hopefully it caught your ear as soon as it said it. It's not just the widow and her son, although I, I dare you to find a single children's storybook that has a picture of anybody else sitting around the table except Elijah and the widow and her son. But it doesn't say that. It says, and her whole household, right? We're starting to pick up that information. So it's not just she has enough food to bake so that she can make a loaf of bread for them during the day. She's able to feed her entire household, which is a number of people, right? We, we know that this is probably multiple families, multiple individuals together. It, it refers to her specifically as the mistress of the house. Uh, that the, There are a number of people now that are essentially clients to the new patron who is this this man of god but then what happens it's interesting i was wondering how it was appropriate for him to stay right in the house with mm -hmm. this woman with it right that makes more sense right yeah. when there it's a, it, it's a whole community he has yeah. his own room he's he, he's staying in the 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 upper space which is yeah. the the guest room yeah that makes more sense. but then her son falls ill and what's the problem he's dead well, yes, but there's but but there is there is a larger issue that, that that's at stake, right? Because the promise that Elijah gave was, as long as you take care of me, everything is going to be okay. And now everything is decidedly not okay. Nothing is okay in this house anymore. And so she comes to Elijah because she's put her trust in him, and she said. Did I put my trust in the wrong person? She comes to him and she brings an entreaty, which is exactly what we talked about. This, this relationship, when, when somebody has a problem and there is a patron client, the client can always go to the patron and say, listen, I need your help. You, you're, you, you have promised in our relationship that you're going to take care of me. I need you to fulfill that promise. I need you to take care of me. And so what does Elijah do? Elijah reminds us who the actual patron in the story is, that this is the Lord uh, the, the one who, who puts the word of truth in his mouth. And so he goes and makes an entreaty to the actual patron in the story, points our, points our attention back to the one who is taking care of everybody all at once. And he in, entreats the Lord and the son is healed. And then the widow affirms that relationship. She, she says that the, 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 the word of truth is in your mouth. But every time that I read this story, I was like, this is a really weird story. I mean, there are a lot of weird stories that happen in, in Kings and Chronicles, okay? Don't, don't get me wrong. There, there are a lot of stories where you just have to pause for a little bit and say, you know, I don't understand this culture and I don't understand what's going on. It's hard to keep track of. But this story in particular always seemed very strange until I understood that this is that there is a different kind of relationship that it's worked. I'm not saying that e any of the people in this relationship understood themselves as I'm the one with power and she's the one that has to plead to me. They, they don't conceive of their world in that way. We do because in our world, there is a constant, consistent hierarchy uh, of, of, of people, even though we, we insist that everything is, is, is equal. Everyone in their individual place. Everyone in their individual place, well, and, exactly. And, and also as well, 
where a lot of our power comes from with wealth, and especially the idea that this wealth is earned, mm -hmm. there isn't a sense of obligation right. to others. It's not like, you know, like, a king, you know, like an, an ancient king who's like, you know, you know, this divine right of kings, and we hear that as like, you know, somebody just being <clears throat> pompous and taking on, which mm -hmm. a lot of them were, but, right. you know, but, oh, but what it was, what the point was supposed to be, ideally, was these are my people. Mm -hmm. I take care of them. I use my authority, my power. Right. I have an obligation both above me, you know, to God and mm -hmm. below me to the people. Mm -hmm. But our culture doesn't work that way. We we were like, no, I've earned my money. Right. I, you know, I, if I do anything, it's out of the goodness of my heart. Mm -hmm. And that should be good enough. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, yeah. one of the things that also goes without saying this book, or that they don't seem to notice, is the people with a lot of stuff also buy the legitimacy for having more stuff by giving some of it away. Mm -hmm. And they also end up buying dependence. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah. yes, if you create a system where you have to go to the big man for your needs, mm -hmm. you also have to live with the big man. You, you have to become friends with the big man. Mm -hmm. Listen to the big man. Yeah. So, they, they, they definitely put a very... Uh, kind face on it. They have rose tinted glasses, and <laughs> that's how I felt in this particular one. They, they were like Greg was saying, they were very overly optimistic <laughs> about the collectivist approach. It's mm -hmm. not as naive as the last book was. Yeah, but it's it's also something that we don't want to just you know read and say why why don't we do everything like this? They <laughs> obviously got all of this figured out mm -hmm. in the rest of the world. The, yeah, yeah, there there are in fact. A lot of abuses that, mm -hmm. that you can see built into the system, ways that people yeah. take advantage well, and of it. Like like even with kids, you know, the system, tribalism is bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tri tribalism is mm -hmm. a real problem. I kind of feel like the authors had, like, explicitly did that. Well, why don't we do this like the rest of the world does at the very end of the chapter? Mm -hmm. I'm like, uh. I also thought you this this book wasn't supposed to be Western bashing. Mm -hmm. This particular chapter was very Western bashing. Mm -hmm. You set up a a caricature of the Western individualist thing. Mm -hmm. Dismiss it as just a cultural view, or dismiss it because it's never lived up to mm -hmm. fully. And then at the same time, idealize the collectivist view. While making a footnote with nuance, yes, this is the ideal that rarely ever got lived up to. It's like you, you can't do both. Yeah. It's and it's always important to remember that the individualist society that we live in, yes, is influenced by the Enlightenment has, and has become dominated by the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. but comes out of Christianity and the way Christianity interacted with what happens when somebody is thrown out of their collective. Mm hmm and gave permission for people to leave their collective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to, to enter into a new kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the word that they use in the New Testament to describe this relationship is friendship. And, and as I mentioned before, this has, there are different ways that it can be understood, but typically this is the kind of relationship we're describing when we talk about friendship. In, in the Gospels, it, it, it was fascinating. Mark only uses this word for friendship once. And Matthew uses it four times. John uses it seven times. 
and Luke uses it 14 times. More than twice as many r- references show up in, in, John, in, in Luke as do in the, the, the next one of, of the, the gospel writers. Uh, so, But we are going to read a passage from Luke and then a passage from John. And what I want us to do is to pay attention to the way that they talk about these kinds of relationships and how they show up. So if everybody would turn to Luke 23. All right, so this is Jesus being sent to Herod. Would somebody read verses 8 through 12? Okay. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some miraculous sign. So Herod questioned him at considerable length. Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the experts of the law were there vehemently accusing him. Even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then dressing him in elegant clothes, Herod sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other, for prior to this they had been enemies. Okay. So in this portion of the gospel, Jesus is on trial, and he has he, he has been uh, been brought before the, the 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 regional governor, who is who is Pilate, and Pilate doesn't want to be involved in this, and so he sends he, he sends him to Herod's court because Herod is the king over the region that includes Galilee, uh, and he says, oh well, you're Herod, you're one of Herod's subjects, so you're his problem, so he sends him over there. Now, typically when we read this, we just, we, we just see this as, well, people are, you know, it's politicians trying to pass the buck. Uh, but what Luke says at the very end is that there's something else that's going on here. That, in fact, what Pilate has done is given a sort of public recognition of the role that Herod is supposed to have in, in this community. Uh, and and then the two of them are now working together in some way. And he uses, again, that word, they became friends, which... Before looking at it through through this lens, this collectivist lens, it looks like like well, why why are they friends? They're just passing Jesus back and forth. That's a dumb reason to be friends. It just it seems really silly. But when we when we locate that language within the context of what that culture looks like, we suddenly can see oh this is this is something different that he's talking about entirely. Now that's just a superficial way of of using that word. But if you guys will turn ahead to uh, John chapter 15. We're going to look at verses uh, 13 through 15 here. And if somebody would read those out, I want us to listen to the language that John uses when Jesus is giving his farewell address to the disciples. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Okay. What do you notice? Well, he contrasts friend with uh, with servant. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's the one thing that stood out to him, because it's like for the like even with the first three of the asymmetrical thing, you could you, know, you could think of it almost as like a master slave master servant mm-hmm. type of relationship. Right. And of course, you know, Saint Paul uses that language some, but mm-hmm. the voluntary nature of it says no. This is not mm-hmm. anything like slavery. Mm-hmm. And so you know, so that's a way of kind of like uh, I would say kind of. Uh, uh, elevating us through grace. Like, mm-hmm. we don't deserve like that elevation, but right. he gives it to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, anybody else? He says we entered into that relationship with them, that mm -hmm. uh, more intimate relationship. But whether or not he's referring to it in the patronage way or in the symmetrical way, mm -hmm. it, it's like there's a little bit of, I, I don't know if there's ambiguity there or not. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's like because you're friends, I share what I have with all of you, mm -hmm. and so now you give me all of what you have in response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always, when I was reading verse 14, thought it was a, a strange way for Jesus to talk. It just sort of right in the middle of him talking about, like, this is what love looks like laying down your life for my friends. And you guys are my friends if you do what I command you to do. But, well, <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound like friendship. Uh, at least not in the way that we understand friendship, right? I don't call my friends the ones that, you know, obey my orders. Uh, you know, that's, that's not the way that friendship works. But if we understand friendship in a different way, that this is a, a relationship between two parties that aren't equal because there's, there, there, there's no equality that is there. There's, there. there's no symmetry between us and Jesus. Yeah. In, in 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 the sense of, of relationships and and, uh, and and righteousness and standing, uh, and yet he says that that if you are if you are faithful, right? That that word of, of grace and faith again. If you are faithful, then you are my friends. The ones that are faithful are the ones who are my friends. The ones who who place themselves in this relationship with me. The ones who remain in this relationship with me. There are a couple of them really quickly from James. We don't all have to turn there. I'll just read these. Um, one is from, from James chapter 2. And this is one probably that you have heard before. Uh, but this is uh, because Paul quotes this as well, that Scripture is fulfilled when it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him with righteousness. But James goes on to say, and he was called a friend of God, that Abraham believes and that that is why he's called God's friend. There's, there's, there's still, again, is that pointing us toward somebody puts their trust in somebody else and that's what friendship looks like. That's what placing ourselves in that relationship of friendship with God looks like. And then again in chapter 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? For whoever may, wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So again, that contrast between which, uh, which patron do we want to belong to? Do we want to belong to the world here or do we want to belong to Jesus? Because Again, in the ancient world, if you were the client of one person, you were not the client of other people. And in, in, in the book, they refer to this as, in, in that, at least in that story about, uh, about Belen and Diocles, that Belen is now understood to be a part of Diocles' household. He belongs to that household. And that language is going to be important for us in the next chapter, especially as we start looking at the way that Paul does ministry uh, and, and, and talks about ministry, this idea of belonging to a household and how we, how, how we belong to a household, uh, the household of faith. It looks like this. And, and James is sort of pointing us in exactly that same direction, saying, look, this is the, there, you, you can only have one master. You can only have one patron. You can only belong. You, you can only have one friend. You can't be friends of both of these houses. These two houses are, 
opposed to each other and and you've got to you've got to choose where you are going to place your allegiance is your faithfulness is your trust going to be in 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 god or is your faith your faithfulness is your trust are the works that you're doing are are the the commands that you're listening to and obeying are those the ones that come from the world and when it's put in in that kind of terminology it to me it's it's as though the 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 image that James is conveying there opens up in a way that I don't think that it did before. Because in my own mind, uh, you know, especially as, you know, somebody that comes, come, comes from an evangelical, you know, tradition, when I, when I think about this idea of like the world and the church, I don't think about it in terms of which one am I putting my trust in. I think about it in terms of, oh, well, I've 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 prayed my prayer and I've done right like I've I've joined one group and the other group is is sort of around and they're doing their thing but I don't think about it in terms of like where am I directing my work what is the the labor that I'm doing where are the places where I go and I I sit and I just listen to the things that that the that the patron that my friend has to say which friend am I spending my time listening to which friend am I looking for ways to anticipate his needs? Which, which friend am I allowing to shape my life and, and the way that I'm living it? And does it look like friendship with God or does it look like friendship with the world? And when it, you put it in those terms, it's suddenly like I, I, I'm starting to understand what it is that James is talking about. And of course, what Paul is talking about. But I, I want to save some of the Paul stuff because we're going to dive into that in the next chapter. I want to look at some things that he, he didn't explicitly talk about here. The point of all of this is that in the biblical world, gifts always have strings attached. That's the the subtitle for for the chapter that we read. Gifts have strings attached. And for us, in in the the American culture that we live in, that makes us really uncomfortable. The idea that a gift has strings attached is essentially for us is like not a gift. Well, if there's strings attached, then it's it's not a gift. Um, For us, we don't have strings attached. We have chains that bind. Right. It's like because we're in our. This is the bit of nuance that irked me that they didn't include in here, was that for us in our gift giving in the no strings attached form, we're giving gifts because we have the bonds. Mm-hmm. They are giving gifts to make the bonds and to strengthen the bond. It's like there's like there's like that idea of being bonded to another mm-hmm. is there in both. It's just. At what part does the gift giving play into it? Mm-hmm. And they didn't go over that bit of nuance in here. It's like <clears throat> because, like you said, for us, strings attached is only ever used in the negative connotation. Right. Because it's like, well, we're I'm using this to force you to do something against your will mm-hmm. on my behalf that right. might that might or might not be. Uh, of a good thing for you whereas Mm -hmm. the ideal of their society that the book talks about again not how it always or usually ever plays out it's supposed to be though i'm going to ask you to do something to help me in and of yourself that won't be harmful to you it'll be something Mm -hmm. that you would be doing anyways Mm -hmm. i'm just going to say hey now i now i need help too Mm -hmm. and so that's like we we have those relationships here. It's just it plays out in a very different way. Right. <clears throat> yeah, any other thoughts? Well, I thought I had kind of at the very beginning when you're going over the asymmetrical uh, relationships was the uh, 
the the first two, or really it could be the first three, was the asymmetrical, mutual, and repeated. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very. What what came to my mind was the Eucharist, mm-hmm. um, where God gives Himself to us, and in response, we give what we have. It's very asymmetrical, obviously. I mean, mm-hmm. God's infinite, we are not. Right. The only thing that we can give is stuff He's already given us. You know, of your own have we given you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do it, you know, every every week. Yeah. Um, but that's the type of relationship he's inviting us into mm-hmm. is is a mutual and reciprocal blessing of of one another, mm-hmm. and then to carry that outward to mm-hmm. the rest of the world. Right. To let that change the way that we understand ourselves and maybe our identity as individuals and as a corporate unit. To to let that 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 nearness that sort of table directedness or, or eucharistically shaped lives to be influenced in that way to, to, to see that and have that change us like the words that we say every Sunday that come from St. Augustine we receive who we are and we become who we receive um, but it is very much that because that's the, the, the language that, that that liturgy emerges out of is exactly this kind of culture uh, where we, we're being invited to become members of a new household we're literally being invited to uh, to, to our patron's table uh, and being counted as part of his household and then that's the, the, the goal there is for us to be transformed to, to become people who belong in that household rather than people who you know feel more comfortable the closer to the door we get right alright well we will pick up next week with chapter 4 <coughs> Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.